I'm wondering if you guys have ever seen a book that is more challenged than the Bible. I'm not talking about challenging to you. I'm talking about people are challenging it all the time. Challenging it to see whether or not this book is absolutely true. Challenging it to see if it works as well. I think that I've, I think a lot of people say, well, it's, it, it, it's true, but it doesn't work. I'm telling you what, folks, if it's true, it does work. You can't have it both ways. There have been repeated attempts trying to disprove the Bible stories. You can look through uh, more recently than any other time, but you can tell that it, you can see that these Bible stories have been, have been challenged. Uh, a noted atheist that I brought out um, last week, when I talked to you about the fact that uh, uh, our, our faith is built on, fa- on facts, let me tell you, our, our faith is built on history as well, and, and there, there's historical stories in here. And I don't think we need to start thinking of these stories as, as myths or just fables that we need to, you know, they have a good uh, twist to them so that we should live uh, accordingly. But these are really historical stories. But this noted atheist said, he says, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles... All are freely used for religious propaganda, and they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. Well, you know what, uh, folks? I, you know, the scripture says that if we don't come to him as a little child, we can't come to him. So calling me a child doesn't hurt me that much. You understand? I think the other side of it, though, he wants to call us an unsophisticate. Are we truly that unsophisticated because we actually believe that the things, the stories that are in the Bible? Do we believe those miracles that are in there and, and really do believe those miracles that are there? And do, you know, do we need to claim that they didn't happen so that we can say, well, we're not unsophisticated. We want to associate ourselves with the sophisticated people. And, and therefore, we're going to start looking at these things that we find in the Bible as just superstitious stories that are told for the unsophisticated sophisticates and the little children and it's not the it hadn't just started now you have to understand the attacks on our on our faith is is not started now mark twain said having faith is believing in something you just know ain't true that was what he said and that goes back quite a ways, and over 100 years ago, in fact, that Mark Twain would say something like that. When I say that to you, what I'm trying to say is, is that it's being attacked all the time. And yet these people that are attacking it are not actually looking very seriously at the evidence that it's true. They've already determined that it's false, and they're going to write off anything that makes it look true. And therefore, they are going to call us unsophisticates and children. And, and I've always noticed that when people have a weak argument, when they have a weak argument, you know what they resort? Uh, they always resort to ridicule. They want to ridicule you. And they think that by ridicule, I can win my argument without having to actually present any evidence that I'm right. But what about the historical proofs? What about the historical proofs that are in the, that, uh, I mean, this Bible talks about? Are there historical proofs? And the answer is yes. There has never been an archaeological discovery that refuted the Bible. And I use that word never. I, that never is a big word, isn't it? That's a word that means forever and never. It never has been disproved. 
Let me give you, I, I don't know if I'm going to go through all of these. I got a whole bunch of them here, but I'm, I don't know if I'll go through all of them again. But it says, one, I, I know of no finding in archaeology that's properly, conf- that's properly confirmed, which is in opposition to the scriptures. The Bible is the most accurate historical textbook the world has ever seen. Dr. Clifford Wilson. Next one. Through the wealth of data uncovered by historical and archaeological research, we are able to measure the Bible's historical accuracy in every case where it claims to be, uh, it, where, where its claims can thus be tested. The Bible proves to be accurate and reliable, Dr. Jack Cottrell. In every instance, the next one says, Every instance when the findings of archaeology pertain to the biblical record, the archaeological evidence confirms sometimes in detailed fashion the historical accuracy of Scripture. In those instances where the archaeological findings seem to be at variance with the Bible, the discrepancy lies with the archaeological evidence. That is, improper interpretation, lack of evidence, etc., not with the Bible. Dr. Bryant C. Wood. I'm, I'm just going to skip the next two. I had two more. If you got them in the notes, you can just read those that are there because I just, I can go on and on. I could have gone 10, 20, 30 archaeologists. I could have, I'd tell you that all of these archaeologists said we just never find anything that refutes the scripture. Now, the greatest evidence that any of the archaeologists have ever used is they say when there is a lack of evidence that proves that it never happened. Do you understand? That's that, but the lack of evidence is no evidence at all. I mean, that's by definition, the lack of evidence is no evidence at all. I mean, that's like this for me. Back in May, when I, uh, I uh, you know, my, my mom got another car, I helped her get another car. Uh, I got a part for her car, a thing that she's going to need, but she doesn't need it right away. So I ordered it on Amazon, and I put it in my backpack, and I put it in my backpack so that the next time I go see my mom, I'm going to have that part. And so I carried it around with me because I knew where it was all the time. And then I, you know, I decided, you know what? This thing is heavy. I'm carrying it around in my backpack everywhere I go. This thing is heavy. I tell you what I'll do. I'll put it in a place where I won't forget where it is. You ever done that? I have been looking for that thing and looking for that thing and looking for it. And I'm going to go see my mom at the latter part of this week, and i got to find that thing. But here's the way that I would do this if I was an archaeologist that wanted to disprove it. Since I can't find it, it must not exist. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I must never have bought it. I must never, it never could have existed. That's the evidence that they're using when they have any evidence. When you go to the Holy Land... Then you find that it, it starts to make the Bible stories start come out alive to you, not the other way around. It doesn't go and say, oh, that's not the way the Bible had it. it go, you go, of course that's the way that it happened. When I went to Mount Carmel several years ago, and I realized, I remember the story of, of Elijah, you know, and he, was, he, pro, he challenged those prophets of Baal. You know, and I, you know, the, the crazy thing was, is that, you know, I looked, that, that Canaanite altar is still there. You know, that's crazy to me. It's still there. And I, you know, I looked, and on the side of that, that mountain, there's a, there's a sloping side. You can actually, you could run down it. I mean, you'd run pretty fast, but you could run down that thing. And so I remembered that story. 
I remember what it said in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 40. And it says when, when, when uh, God lit the, the fire, you know, and the people were all yelling out, that, you know, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And it says in that next verse, in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 40, it says, And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, and let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. When you get down to that sloping side, down at the bottom down there, there's the brook of Kishon. That's where it is. It's down there. And, but I had a different vision at that time. When I was looking at it, I said, I bet those rascals started taking off running. I think you can get going pretty fast, but I'm telling you what, these people, they hadn't been working out all day trying to get their, their fire lit. They're scared as they can all they get out. I know you've got some adrenaline going right now, but they got some adrenaline going too. Seize the prophets of Baal, and they're going to run those rascals all the way down to that river. But I think that's about where they caught them. And it says that they slaughtered them there. I could see that story. One of the reasons that I've taken people to the Holy Land is because of that. You know, uh, that when they, they see the things that are there, they start to say, that's how it happened. That's how it happened. And the stories don't, it doesn't diminish the stories. It makes the stories come out. I remember one time we went out on the Sea of Galilee. We were out there on the Sea of Galilee. It was like glass. It was in the morning. We sang some songs. It was wonderful out there. And then we went in and we started to, we were on the shore and a storm came up within 30 minutes. Within 30 minutes it's coming up. I'm telling you what, waves are just coming up over the shore. I mean, it was unbelievable what happened within 30 minutes. And, I saw, and we'd already seen one of the boats, one of the boats, the ancient boats that they had out there. One of those ancient boats were open. And I could see these disciples. They started started rowing when that water was like glass they started across that sea of galilee and this storm came in and i could see it happen right then and right there and i understood because you see before that i thought you know these were the dumbest guys i ever seen why would they go out there in a storm but i found out the storms come up pretty fast on the sea of galilee i've seen the hillsides the hillsides where jesus would have taught you know where we've taught those beatitudes and you could see where they'd been, they'd, he just lined them up and it was just kind of a, almost like an amphitheater there. Have all these people. And the way the teaching was done at that time was you would say it, they would say it, you would repeat it, they would repeat it. And what it would do is it would just go up, you know, blessed are the meek, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then you'd say, blessed are the meek, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And all of 10,000 people could easily get a sermon out of that. And I said, there, I can see how that went on. I've looked across that valley of Megiddo and you see, you can see so far that you probably can't see who would be driving the chariot, but you could tell how they were driving the chariot. And I remember they said, that looks like Yehu's coming, you know, can't tell it's Yehu yet, because, but he's driving that chariot like it's, it must be him. And I realized that the things that we have right there, they don't speak against what the Bible says. They enhance and prove the authenticity of the stories in the Bible. I could go on and on with that, but let me go to just one story. One story that I think is at the core of our faith. In fact, as our faith is, is based on this historical event. The resurrection of Jesus provides the foundation of our faith. It is the very foundation of our faith. See, Jesus lived during the Roman occupation of Israel. Let me go through a little of the history and then show you how the scripture really says the same thing. Herod is recorded to be the king at Jesus' birth. There are too many archaeological ruins to dispute this. 
There are his palaces at Caesarea and in, even at Masada. There is this, the Herodium where, uh, I mean, this, this is an egomaniac. You have to understand, he built on the Herodium, he built a place that was higher than any other place. He wanted his palace to be higher than anything else. So he had them literally pile up the dirt to get the, 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 his foundation was, they just piled it up, piled it up, piled it up, and they made him an, his own mountain, essentially. Can you imagine that? So that his palace would be, you know, greater and higher than any other thing around. It was higher than anything around as far as that goes. They found his tomb there in 2007. Now, I'm one of those people that believe that when they got the date of B.C. and A.D., they got it wrong. I mean, to tell you that part. I don't believe that Jesus was born in 1 A.D. I'm just going to give you the thing there. One of the reasons I don't believe in that is because Herod died in 4 B.C. He was king when Jesus was born. We know that because of what the scriptures record to us. Now, in 6 B.C., there was a planetary alignment of the sun, the Jupiter, and the moon, and Saturn, which were all part of the sky known as Aries at that time. It would have triggered the Magi so that they would have looked up 6 B.C., two years later. 4 B.C. is where we, when uh, Herod died, but it would have triggered the time when the, the uh, Magi at least would have taken off. They would have gone and they would have known that there's going to be a significant king that is going to be bo- uh, born in Israel because of this. And Herod, it says, had all the male babies killed, born in Bethlehem from two years of age and younger. It says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Does that make sense to you guys? It is two years old and younger. They saw the star. They did not necessarily, it's not necessarily the time of Jesus' birth. I always said that. And then I realized when I started to figure out the reign of Tiberius and stuff, that was not the time of Jesus' birth. Jesus was born, I believe, in 4 BC, right before Herod would die. And Herod, with being the egomaniac that he was, I don't know if he thought he was going to live forever, but he certainly thought he was going to reign forever if he did. So here was the situation with him. He would have had somewhere between 6 and 20 boys killed, little boys killed at that time. Now that's still the, the slaughter of the innocents, if you want to call it that. Because I, I, I think one child being killed that way would be terrible. But he, somewhere between 6 and 20. But it would not have made the historical records. So that was the way it was. In 1967, we find also in Israel... There is a burial tomb that had several ossuaries. An ossuary was a, was a box, and what they would do is, is they, they would wrap you up, put you in a cave, uh, in a cave or in a, in, a, in a tomb, they would call it, and, 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 and you, would, you would decay. And when you were down to bones, they would take all the bones and they would put you in a box. The, si- the, the size of the box was the size of your femur because that's the biggest bone. They would pile the bones inside of that box. They would label that box. So they could tell who was in it. This was a very, box was a very ornate box and it was from a very important family. It dated to the first century AD. And they're described on the remains of that box was a, a guy's named Joseph Caiaphas. Joseph ben Caiaphas was the high priest that presided at Jesus' trial or whatever you want to call it, the kangaroo court. 
Josephus records that Caiaphas was the chief priest from 18 to 36 AD. Now let's figure some things out. Jesus was born in 4 BC, right at that number. He begins his uh, ministry at 30 years of age. Scripture tells us he's 30 at that time, and that would have been 27 AD. Let's just figure it out real, real easy here. Now, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, the math didn't work out. There is no year zero. There never was a year zero. So take that year out, and that's how you get to 27. Okay, you get to 27 AD, and at 27 AD, if, he had his, if his ministry was three years long, as most people uh, think that he was three years long, he would have died and been buried and resurrected at 30 AD. Caiaphas' age fits. You realize he was the high priest from 18 to 36 AD. That's historical facts. So it fits within there. Matthew twenty six fifty seven. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. So Caiaphas was the person that would have, would have done that. But Caiaphas did not have the authority to sentence someone to death. He had to take him to Pontius Pilate, who was the governor at the time. It says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 1, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, the, the word was is that Pilate never existed because they had no real record of Pilate existing. However, a stone was found in Caesarea that had these words on it. It says... To the divine Augustus, and what would happen was Augustus had been the emperor of Rome, and after he died, they, give, they gave him divinity. And Tiberius, his adopted son, became the emperor at that time. And so the, I'm just reading you the words that, are, that we can read on the stone, not the words that everybody fills in. To the divine Augustus, this Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has, de- has dedicated this. What we got is Pontius Pilate's name. Now, again, Pilate was the prefect from 36, or 26 to 36 AD. Fits right in there, the time period fit. Now, Jesus was publicly crucified. We, that's the way they crucified people, by the way. You didn't get privately crucified. They put you on a road. They wanted everybody to see you. It was right beside a road. And, and so this is the story on this. It says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now this is the story of Jesus' death on the cross itself. Now, Matthew, who wrote this gospel right here, Matthew would have written this gospel somewhere possibly around 70 A.D. or maybe a little bit sooner than that, but 70 A.D. So you're looking at about 40 years in between. And a lot of people would say, you know, 40 years, that's a long time to get a story really messed up. However, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he was converted in 36 A.D. Now, let's figure that little number up. 
Jesus is crucified at 30 AD. He is, he is converted at 36 AD. Paul is converted at 36 AD. It's six years. You can figure that up real, real easy here. Now, here's the problem that you would have. You're going to make up a story. You got too many people still alive. You're going to make up a story. You better make sure everybody's dead. You know, because then you might get away with the story. But if you've got all these people that are hanging around that are, that are alive, you're going to have a problem with your story. I remember uh, when I was, uh, oh, way back in the ministry, there was this evangelist that was getting all the rage reviews. Everybody needed to have this evangelist in the church. And some of the monster megachurches were having this guy come and tell his testimony about how he had been, how God had changed him from a guy that was living under a bridge and had no family life or had no family at all. And all of a sudden, you you know, God has changed him and now he's preaching the gospel and it was the most wonderful thing that anybody had ever heard until some of the people that grew up with him heard about his story. And then what happened was they came forward and said, we know his family. He grew up under a bridge. He grew up in a loving home. Kind of did a real bad number on his evangelism stuff. I remember going to hear a missionary myself, a missionary who said there were thousands of people being converted. And the miraculous stories he would tell you just blew my mind. The miraculous things that would gone on, thousands and thousands of people. And he talked about preaching all night. And a couple of thousand people in Kenya would come to the Lord. And he, he, walked, he talked and talked and talked about it. In fact, one mission agency decided that they were going to send missionaries to that area just so that they could disciple all of these new converts. The only problem was they weren't there. He just made up these stories. You see, if you're going to tell a lie, you better let everybody die first. That's what you really need to do. You need to make sure there's nobody around that can refute your story. And believe it or not, the more famous you get with your story, the more it's going to grab the attention of the people who are still alive. You see, the, the crucifixion of Jesus had to be true. Or there would have been people that was knowing that it was a lie. And they would have gone. And when Paul had said something about having come to, to, you know, to Jesus or uh, Matthew or any of these other people had said this story, they just said, no, we were there. We saw it. It didn't happen. They were going to be. It had to be true. And then Jesus was declared dead by someone who knew death. It says in John chapter 19, verse 33, But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. What they were going to do, they would break their legs so that they couldn't push themselves up anymore, and it would hasten the, um, the crucifixion, or hasten death. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. What is he saying here? John himself said, I saw this. I saw this. You understand this, what he's saying. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. Now, these Roman soldiers had killed people before. They crucified people before. And they knew what death looked like. But just to make sure they pierced Jesus' side, many people who are crucified die from asphyxiation. What happens is that they can take air in, but they cannot expel air. They cannot let it out. So what they end up doing is, is that they start to have carbon dioxide build up. And with that carbon dioxide, there is a fluid that will gather around the pericardial sac around in the abdomen. The soldiers would know this. And what happened? I mean, very accurately telling the story, they pierced him and it was like water and blood coming out. This fluid that was there. They knew they didn't need to break Jesus' legs. 
Then when we get to the point of the resurrection, we have the, a Roman guard. A Roman guard was placed to make sure his disciples didn't steal the body, for he had told them that he would be resurrected in three days. Now, a lot of people want to say, how many soldiers is a Roman guard? You've got to ask that question. How many were there? Now, most of the time, we have two. You know why we have two? Because in every Christmas pageant or every, uh, or every Easter pageant that we've put on, there's always two of them. I mean, and everybody thinks there must be two. That's, uh, that's not an accurate way to do this. A Roman guard typically would somewhere between four and 16. But it wasn't four. I don't believe that in a, in a heartbeat. You see, what would happen is, is that you would, have, you would have them be on duty from three to four hours. They weren't all on duty at the same time. So when they said the guards became like dead men when there was an angel that came, it's plural, so you can't have only one there. You've got to at least have two there. But I want to give you kind of a Roman idea here. The Romans were not people who like to lose they didn't lose battles and the way that you didn't lose a battle at that time was you had to have superior forces i mean give you an idea at masada where there were 967 jews hold up they sent 15,000 soldiers they didn't want to lose now understand what was the story the disciples were going to come and steal the body how many disciples you got you got 11 do you think they're going to send four? Do you think they're going to send eight? I think they may have sent as many, maybe 20 or more. In fact, I, I saw one uh, New Testament scholar who said, no, no, it was 20 was the minimum that would have sent. And if there was 20, that meant that they were been on a schedule of five on guard at a time. Five, 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 five. They did it in three to four hours. And if one guard falls asleep, if one guard falls asleep, whether they're on duty or not, you know what I'm trying to say? If you were the one on duty, then your whole group gets executed afterwards with one of them falling asleep. And if you're off duty, you still get executed because one of those guys fell asleep that was on duty. Do you understand? So you had a real motivator from the other guards. Stay awake and watch this tomb. So this is the story that we have. And that story must have been, uh, had to be, that, that's a matter of history. That's not a matter of, of uh, the Bible even. That's a matter of the history that is there. But after the resurrection, an elaborate ruse was planned to keep the truth hidden. Now, you're going to say, but couldn't this have been the truth? I'm going to, I'm going to tell you why this hadn't been the, couldn't be the truth. Matthew 28, 11. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city. And you realize, some of the guard. Well, that eliminates the possibility of eight because it would have been a couple of the guards. And when you, said, you know, what you, what you got here is you got to have some. You got to have, have three. You got to have four. You got to have some of the guard. You got to have something that is there. So some of the guard goes into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. Now, they're going to tell what had taken place. Angel came, stone rolls away, we became like dead guys. Uh, you know, Jesus is no longer there. Okay, that's the story. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, 
Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So some of the guards went to the priest. Now, why didn't they go to their, their Roman superiors? Why didn't they go to their officers? Do you know why, don't you? Let me say this to you. Let me tell you the story. I, I, I'm coming in and I'm going to say, uh, Captain, what happened was there was an angel showed up. And I want you to realize that um, uh, the stone just kind of rolled out of there. And uh, Jesus is no longer there. Uh, and uh, we, we kind of fell over like dead people. You know, and, 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 the, and the captain's going to say, oh, that's a great explanation. I think we'll let you guys go now, won't we? What's going to happen? They know better than to go to, the, the, to their uh, superiors. They're going to go to the chief priest. They want somebody that can help them. Why didn't all of them show up at the chief priest? Well, I think those others are making tracks. They know what's going to happen to them. They're getting out of there. I got to go. Why did they need to give them any money? Weren't they motivated already? I think that the others, they had enough money already to start a new life. Because they needed to go into the witness protection program. I'm telling you where they were going. They're going to find a place where they won't be known anymore. They're going to sell those Roman uh, uh, uniforms. And they're going to get rid of that, those uh, swords. And they're going to go out on their own. And they need to make it on their own. And so they gave them some money so that they could, they could, uh, they could make it on their own. Because quite frankly, even taking a bribe was a, an offense that could have gotten them executed. So they needed to start a new life. You see, if the story had been true, they would have executed the soldiers. You see how clear this is? If the story had been true, in other words, we fell asleep, they would have executed the soldiers. But they didn't. It proves the story. Then Jesus appeared to over 500 people after the resurrection. Think about that for a little bit. Again, you got too many people living to be able to, uh, to tell a story like this. Paul records in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who Peter obviously, then to the twelve, then he appeared to the more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, Paul is a rare person in this whole list of things here. Paul was on his way to a very successful life. Paul is on his way to being, being wealthy and respected, living in a nice place, having a nice family and being able to live just about the life that he wants to live. And he meets Jesus on the Damascus road and he realizes what the truth of the gospel is and his life changed. And a lot of people would say, did his life change for the better? And the answer is yes. If you want to look at it in terms of his relationship with the Lord, but no, if you want to consider his relationship with 
the authorities that he had originally been running around with. He had no reason to follow Jesus except for the truth. That's the only reason. You realize he's only got one reason and it's the truth. He, like many of those who knew Jesus as Lord, gave his life for the testimony of Jesus being Lord. Now, would you, you think about this, would you perpetuate a lie if you knew that you were going to be killed for it? Somebody is going to kill you if you say that again. Would you say it again? He did it over and over again. Now I'll tell you the truth, folks. I just touched the tip of the iceberg and the historical evidences of Jesus being exactly what our faith say he is. I just touched the tip of the iceberg. There are tons of other things that are there. And there's tons of other things that you can discover even by archaeology or by the history that has been written. What we need to know is, is that we do not have a faith built by myths. We do not have a faith built by myths. These are not fables. These are not just nice stories. These are not just something that we read to our children so that they'll be nice and honest and and such. These are stories of truth backed up by history. And history also proves it to this unbelieving world that we live in. But let me say this to you. Those who don't want to believe, they won't believe. They will make every excuse that is out there. Now, that's really being dishonest with themselves, isn't it? That's being as dishonest as that, that evangelist who was telling those stories about how he, you know, lived under a bridge and was changed. Or that missionary who said that all these thousands of people were saved in Kenya. You see, that's being dishonest to yourself while you're being dishonest to others. Pray with me.